0: I am not a fan of these uh, revivals. They, they seem like ploys to desperately try to capture, recapture an audience that, that may be leaving. And, and to me, they never work. Some are better than others, but they're never as good as the original. And, and even, even if everyone was alive and the fact that they're, like you mentioned, they're not here makes, I, makes it, I think, I- impossible to, to do. Because what, is that first, what would that first scene be back? Coming back from the parents' funeral? That, that's, a, that's a fun way to begin, right? That's sad.
1: You may or may not recognize that voice, but you've undoubtedly encountered his work. From 1996 to 2005, he created one of the most iconic American sitcoms airing at the turn of the century. My guest on Barry the Lead today is a 58-year-old writer, producer, husband, father, and food enthusiast.
0: Hey, this is Phil Rosenthal, and you're listening to "Bury the Lead" with Derek Russell. But even if they were here, I just like to remember it the way it was when it was good.
1: Phil's referencing the recent resurgence of television series that are returning years after being off the air. Shows like The X Files, Roseanne, and Murphy Brown were all long running, but would Phil's show Everybody Loves Raymond work in 2018? Listen, we
0: like, we like. The show so much, and we like the people so much that it's natural to want to see them again. Yeah, but you can see them without forcing them to go back and recreate a time when they were obviously much younger. <laughs> Who can do that? Would you take an athlete and put them out there and say, "Go ahead, right? <laughs> go, go, hit that home run, run, run down the field, and let us tackle you again now that you're 60 or 70"? <laughs> you wouldn't do that. Here's what I would do. I would do a reunion show, a special, where we all gather, maybe with a great interviewer, and we do something that the writers and I did uh, in the last year or two of the show. We went around the country, actually, and we each took turns telling stories of terrible things that happened to us at home, and then we illustrated those stories with clips that those stories became on Raymond. Can't you ever just be quiet? Don't you tell me to be quiet. I have a mind of my own, you know. I can contribute. I'm not just some trophy wife. (laughs) You're a trophy wife? What contest in hell did I win? We could do that. It would be a reunion. It would be you get to see the actors and how they are right now and reflecting back on the show. And the show is the show. The show, thankfully, is still in syndication around the world. You can see it any time. You can visit them anytime. And I like to preserve it the way it was. I don't need to, you know, muddy the waters with some rehash.
1: Yeah. I was hoping you would say well, that. Well that's my attitude. Okay. I was huh? I was hoping you would say that. That was my hope.
0: Oh. <laughs> that you would... Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a huge honeymooners fan, right? I love the honeymooners. Yeah. And and in the seventies and eighties even they, they would have these specials where they got back together and do the show. And it was nice to see them for about a minute and then you kinda got sad. That they got old and they weren't, you know, wasn't as sharp or as funny as it was, and they were just kind of rehashing bits, and it was just never as good.
1: I want to ask you something that I, I've thought about for some time. I've heard you say that you felt you couldn't cut it as an actor, and that's why you uh, turned to writing. Is it because you have trouble acting anything but joyful all the time?
0: <laughs> you're the first person to ask me that. Fantastic. Usually, usually the question is, so you failed as an actor? Is that why you are a writer? <laughs> i uh i honestly you know what i couldn't stomach it i couldn't stomach the rejection you know if i auditioned and i just i was i realized you know it's not like high school and college where the competition isn't so fierce and you usually get a part even if you don't get the part that you wanted you're in the show and that's really what i loved about it and and uh you know, when I graduated and moved to New York, nobody cared that I was a big star in college and high school. And, and that I couldn't even get auditions because I couldn't get an agent. And you can't get an agent unless they see you in something. And so what do you do? I just couldn't hack it. I just didn't have the stomach for it. And then some friends of mine and I wrote a show for ourselves to be in. And that was the transition into writing. And, and, and the same year, I'm going to say 1987 about, when I was 27 already and 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 uh, had been struggling in New York for six, seven years, uh, a, a friend of mine was a writer and he came to my house with a word processor, which is a pre-computer, big, blue, gray metal box. I still remember it. It's probably, by the way, for writers out there, it's probably better to have a word processor than a computer to write on because the computer that you write on is also attached to the world's biggest distraction. <laughs> and that keeps me from writing a lot more than I would <laughs> had I only had a, a word processor. Anyway, we wrote a screenplay. We sold that screenplay, and suddenly, you know, the decision was made. I went from eating tuna fish and hot dogs for dinner to eating whatever I wanted. And I said, ah, if I can, if I can write... That's a tiny step up from the rejection of being a writer. I mean, being an actor, right? That's a a tiny You still get rejected a lot, but it's not to your face. (laughs) Your audition is what you wrote. You send it in, and then you get rejected that way. It was much easier.
1: I was watching somebody feed Phil uh, a few clips on YouTube before we spoke today, and uh, having watched the series, I can concur with this. There was a YouTube comment that... Said Phil always looks like somebody just told him there's going to be ice cream wherever he goes.
0: Ah, that's (laughs) right. And you know why? Because usually I find ice cream.
1: (laughs) You just you 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 your persona is so joyful. And I feel like that happy doesn't cut it as a term. It 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 exudes in the show. You see it on Netflix in this new series. It and it I if anybody else was doing what you have done with somebody feed Phil, and obviously there have been other iterations where people travel and and eat i don't think it would work as well if it wasn't you in front of the camera with this oh thank you somebody feed phil is phil's new netflix series that chronicles his travels across the world to find the best food wherever he can find it
0: i i feel i felt like and i've had this dream for years of doing this show even in a world where there are other shows especially you know dominated by someone like anthony bourdain who's who's a genius at it and and he you know pioneered the the form kind of right uh the way i sold this show was one line i said i'm exactly like anthony bourdain if he was afraid of everything <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're because
0: hired. i realized what my i realized what my niche was that that i love food and travel but i did i didn't want to be i'm not an adventurer yeah and and I feel like there are many people who are sitting next to me on the couch watching Bourdain and saying, he's amazing. I'm never doing that. If they saw me out there, they would say, oh, if that guy can go outside, maybe I can too.
1: It, it, this is kind of, it's a revamped because you had, um, I'll have what Phil's having back th- right. three or so right. years ago. And then Netflix, did you go to Netflix? Netflix came to you. How did that come about?
0: I believe they came to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the PBS show was not going to continue. You'd have to ask them why. This is the same exact show. It just had to be rebranded as a Netflix original. Yeah. But now, you know, the budget is bigger because we shoot in 4K, ultra high definition, and, and I have a theme song. That's the big difference. I love the theme song. <laughs>
1: feels like an 80s sitcom almost. With
0: the you got it. That was on purpose. Oh, okay. I wrote a few lyrics. I sent it to my favorite band, Lake Street Dive, who i would become a little friendly with. If anybody's uh, listening to this, they should go on YouTube and check out Lake Street Dive. They're one of the best bands in America, and, and their, their music is so great. I hope uh, people will check them out.
1: It's a good, it's a good name though. Somebody feed Phil. It's fantastic. You've 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 gone to it's New good. Orleans.
0: It's good. It reminds you a little bit of Everybody Loves Raymond. It does. Same, same. Yeah, and it 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 has to do with food, and it has a little humor in it. So I feel like the the show title reminds you of something that people say when they come home and they wonder if anybody fed the dog. <laughs> Somebody feed Phil. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Part one of the series premiered in January on Netflix, which would lead us to believe part two is probably incoming.
0: You're no dummy.
1: Yeah. I try. You got it. I That's right.
0: You know, people ask me, is there going to be more? I said, look at what it says. Yeah. That's part one.
1: Though Phil says he can't spoil anything, he does drop hints about where you could figure out where he's been for part two.
0: Go through my Instagram. Mm-hmm. Go back a few months. Yeah. There's your hint. Okay. There, that's, a,
1: that's it. That's Phil it. said that traveling was never a big part of his family's life growing up. But experiences like Somebody Feed Phil and his documentary Exporting Raymond, which shows Phil working with Russian TV executives to develop their own version of Everybody Loves Raymond, gave him the opportunity to try new things.
0: He couldn't afford it. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I went overseas. And, then, and I did that only because I got a free flight as a courier for DHL bringing their stuff overseas, Right and and you get land in in like frankfurt or something you hand your luggage tags to a dhl guy and that's their stuff that's how it flew in those days with with some kid in a in a in a coach class ticket and and then two weeks later you come back and do it the other way back to new york which is where i was living um and those two weeks are yours so i hopped on a train as soon as i hit frankfurt and i went to paris and then overnight from Paris to Florence, Italy, and then back up to Frankfurt. It was the greatest thing I ever did in my life. It it blew me away. I couldn't believe how much fun it was. And I had no money at all. I had maybe $200 to spend for the two weeks. I stayed in hostels. I stayed on friends of friends' couches. I ate, you know, very cheaply. And I loved every sight, sound, and taste and person that I met.
1: Working at DHL isn't the only interesting job Rosenthal had before breaking into television. He was once fired from a security guard position at the Metropolitan Museum of Art.
0: Oh, you have to you have to bring that up to embarrass me? No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was a guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yes, this is what a, 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 somebody with... Uh, a bachelor of fine arts degree is the kind of job you can get. So, so I was I was uh, a guard during the day, and then I think I got into a play, and then I moved to the later shift from like four to midnight, and then I worked midnight to eight in the morning when I was in, when I was in play, and and uh, I thought I could do this. I was twenty one years old. I thought that I could stay awake from midnight to eight in the morning, and then just change overnight. I could change my sleeping habits well it turns out that i couldn't and i was fired for falling asleep on a 300 year old bed
1: did did you just were you walking by it and you were like nobody's gonna know i'll just lay here for a little while uh, no, i
0: was a, i was i remember being a zombie i remember being on my third night without a real night's rest and I finish my route, you know, when you're a guard, you do routes around the certain areas of the museum. By the way, the guards are completely superfluous. They don't need guards at the Met. They're there for show, pretty much, because <laughs> uh, there's electronic everything. But, you know, you're supposed to return to your route uh, to the post at a certain time. And then the guy on your post, he walks around for an hour and then comes back and then you walk around for an hour so it was about 4 or 5 a.m i had finished my route early i was in the on the third floor of the american wing i was passing by a room called the heart room h-a-r-t and it had period furniture from from you know the 1600s and and uh or the 1700s and and you know of the old west maybe and there was a little crib and there was a a bed, and there was there was no stanchion. There was no, like, you know, red velvet rope around it or anything. It was just a, you know, pretty plain bed. And I think I just remember walking over to it, and then an hour and a half later, the entire museum guard staff is looking for the guard that didn't return to his post, and they get a little worried, because what if there's a robbery, and the guard is killed? Or what if the guard committed a robbery? Or what? where is this guard who never came back and never left the building, right? What's happening? So I remember being shaken awake by a supervisor, a woman who was looming over me saying, what are you doing? <laughs> and I just remember thinking, how did she get in my room? <laughs> right? But there's a plaque now over that bed that says Phil Rosenthal slept here.
1: Is there seriously?
0: No. No, no. of course not. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll tell you something. That experience, as humiliating as it was, now cut to, I'm going to say, eight years later. And I'm trying to make it as a writer in Hollywood. And a friend of mine wants to write a sitcom script with me. And you write a sample script called a spec script, which is for no money. It's just a sample, like an audition, that you're going to send around. And the show that was big right then was Roseanne. So let's write a Roseanne sample script. What should we write about? Well, what if Dan, the husband, is working real hard and he gets a second job as a guard at night at the museum? And he falls asleep on a three hundred year old bed, and we wrote that script, and people around town said, "What an imagination!
1: Little did they know
0: yeah <laughs> and that that got us that got us our first gig writing so you, the the reason I love telling you this is because for anyone listening who wants to be a writer, you know we all have these terrible things that have happened to us <laughs> embarrassing stories, stories about our families uh things that we think only our family would would think is funny um saying that's the stuff that's the stuff that's the thing that separates you from me and you from anybody else on the planet is the stuff that's happened to you that's filtered through your point of view and your the way you experienced it no one else on earth has that And that's what will make your voice stand out.
1: Rosenthal says he finds joy from myriad places, but being able to run his own show again is one thing he loves. They said, do you have anything? And I said, I
0: did. I have this had this dream for years. I want to do a food show where I show you uh, the best places on earth to eat in, in an effort to get you to travel. And they said, we've been looking for a food and travel show with humor for years. Where would you like to go? I called my brother and said, I got six episodes on pbs he said really they're going to let you fly around the world and eat yes what are you going to call the show the lucky bastard
1: calling your parents at the end of every episode has, is yeah that's is, very important would if would you ever take them with you maybe not internationally cuz i'm sure that would be a lot for them but take take them with you on a on a journey somewhere to eat
0: why would i ruin that <laughs> Why would I? So they can complain about the food in each place. No, they're they're uh, they're great where they are. I can't tell you what's coming. Yeah, but
1: something's coming. Okay, you'll see. They're not complainers, are they?
0: What? They're not complainers. That's <laughs> a, that's ninety percent of their existence, and mine, by the way. It's everybody. The body at rest complains. I think. <laughs>
1: Um the show obviously I you know I think uh do you have a favorite one? I mean I you you've had several episodes going all over yeah. and you you know land in New yeah. Orleans. But I do you, have a
0: I do have a favorite. I yeah. do. But uh it's in it's in I'll have a Phil's having and it's the Italy episode. Really? And and that's because of everywhere I've traveled Italy is my favorite and and the Italy episode is kind of a one of a kind cuz it's very personal. Uh of these six somebody feed Phil mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um I want to say that Saigon, I think, is my favorite episode, but my favorite place that I went, maybe, I love them all. I really do. But if I had to pick one that I can't wait to go back to right away, it would be Lisbon.
1: Lisbon was a fun episode for a lot of reasons, I think, for people to watch. Um, I think it's because it's not a place you hear, even in in recent years, you hear more people out going to Saigon than you do Lisbon or any, any place like that.
0: It's true. I mean, the joke was that, that you know, people think of uh, Portugal as the New Jersey of Spain, but it's <laughs> not. It's, it's, its own phenomenal place and culture and be, absolutely beautiful. I mean, you, see, you saw the episode, yes?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've watched, I've watched them it's, all a couple of times now. I enjoyed them so oh, much. Oh,
0: great. So it's, un, it's undeniable, right? It's not just me. No. You can't. You, you see it and you want to go.
1: Well, and I, I don't, I'm going to be honest with, you, you know, I, I grew up on TV and films and I've never been a huge fan of the travel slash food shows. They just never, you know, I've I always feel like, why should I watch this when I could just go make something? Because I'm just getting hungry watching this. But you, right? you do it in such a way that it's not just a, it's not just a here, here's food. Like it's, I mean, and I think it goes back to that joy that you, that you put out. Uh, both. Well, the show, the show is kind of a hybrid. It's not just food.
0: It's not just travel. Right. It's also kind of part sitcom. Yeah. Because that's the world I come from. So I understand that the people and the characters that you meet are always the most important part. So the food and the humor is actually just an excuse to get to the people. And the people are why I ultimately want you to travel. So the, the show has a purpose, it's to get you to travel. Even if you can't afford to travel overseas, I understand that. But you can even travel in your own town. And I want to tell them, what's the worst that can happen to you? You try it and you don't like it, you don't have to have it again. Yeah. But try it. The, the tasting is its own reward, right? Just like the journey. And I think you'd be so happy to find things that you like from another world, that it opens your mind a tiny bit. That's the point. Maybe we wouldn't be in such trouble today if we all could experience just a little bit of someone else's
1: experience. For Somebody Feed Phil, the camera rolls on Rosenthal at all times, catching him in some of his most vulnerable moments while experiencing things he's never tried before. It's a far cry from the CBS sitcom that starred Ray Romano, Patricia Heaton, Doris Roberts, and Peter Boyle. Roberts passed in 2016, and Boyle in 2006. The characters were loosely based on Rosenthal's own parents, and he recalls casting the two legendary actors fondly.
0: Roberts, we saw I think about a hundred women for that role, um, nobody came close to her. She came in. She auditioned with that fruit of the month scene, and uh, that was in the pilot. And you know, I had a very specific mother in mind, my mother, and she just captured. She doesn't look anything like my mother or even sound like my mother, but she just captured the spirit of it. And, and uh, you know, there was not even a close second. Peter Boyle was the idea of Les Moonves, the president of CBS. And this was Les's first year as president of CBS. So this was his first year of programming for the fall. And he liked the script, I guess, and he liked where we were going, and, and he said, what about Peter Boyle for the father? And I'm like, wow, I didn't even think a movie star like Peter Boyle would be interested in doing a sitcom. And I met him, and he scared me, and okay. I gave him the part. Of
1: course, my childhood memory of Peter Boyle is Young Frankenstein. That's that's what I think of. Course, of course, me too. About. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. So. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny to go back and watch Young Frankenstein after having watched Raymond for years because you almost see some of Frank... <laughs> In in that role. It's true. In that role.
0: <laughs> I think he brought a lot of him to every role. Two fascinating things about him, I can tell you. One, he studied to be a monk when he was younger. Wow. Yes. I said, Why did you why did you give it up? He said, Not enough girls. And the other fact is, do you know who the best man was at his wedding?
1: I do not. John Lennon. Really?
0: Yep. Yep. His wife was a reporter for Rolling Stone and knew John and Yoko. And uh, his wife was assigned... The way they met was she was assigned to cover the movie Young Frankenstein. So she met Peter Boyle in his makeup. How
1: many different iterations of Raymond are there now across the globe? I don't know. You you don't know? I know.
0: I think our original show is either subtitled or dubbed in 140 countries. Yeah. But then there are the countries that have taken our scripts and adapted them right. and made them their own. They translated the scripts and cast their own people. So I know there's an Egyptian version, which is wild. You see the mother come in in a mufta into the kitchen. It's, it's fantastic to me to see. And, and of course, the Russian one we documented, that's the, the story of the Russians asking me to come over there and help them adapt the show. Into Everybody Loves Kostya. I went and tried to help them, and the movie is really a a real life comedy about a guy who thinks he's an expert in something, like me and my show, going to a land where nobody's going to listen to you. So that's, you know, it's a metaphor for how they don't even listen to it in your own house.
1: Would you, would you do a sequel now with, every, with the Russian relations as they are? Yeah, look at it. It's
0: timely again. I could show you the pitfalls and, uh, and practical uh, problems.
1: Rosenthal is also a huge proponent of the arts and believes that everybody should be. A
0: lot of people think the arts are disposable. What they don't realize is it's the answer. And what I mean by that is that, that actually the arts help solve the, pro- solve the problem. You know that people, the kids that have arts education in school, they actually do better in the stuff these people supposedly care about, like art, like, like math and science. Because it gets the brain working in a different way, in a way that engages the person because the person enjoys doing it if you just do math and science problems all day yes there are those people who actually like that i don't understand them but i i understand that somebody uh, you know is wired differently but a lot of people get this kind of brain stimulation from art music dance theater right sculpture painting so i don't know about you but, I, but it was in my elementary school there was some like My junior high and my high school, I can't imagine going to school and not having those subjects. Doesn't it make us all more well-rounded, just at the very least? Who are we if we don't have our culture, right? You're learning what good writing is if you're in a play. You're learning what music is. You're learning how to sing, how to express yourself. You're learning how to dance, something that you know maybe you're terrible at, but you try it. You try it. You're learning, yes, how to be a team, yes. And you're having fun. Let's not forget <laughs> that that makes life worth living, right? You take that away from kids, wow, they're going to hate school.
1: Rosenthal said he was given a piece of advice from a TV legend that he's kept with him all these years.
0: Ed Weinberger. Yeah. Ed, Ed Weinberger was a great showrunner, uh, worked on uh, Mary Talamore and Taxi uh, and many other shows, the Cosby Show, the 80s. And he actually gave me this advice when I was making the pilot for Raymond. He said, do the show you want to do, because in the end, they're going to cancel you anyway. And that one piece of advice has stayed with me my whole life as, as, as life advice, not just about a show. But we all get canceled one day, right? So do the show you want to do.
1: Somebody Feed Phil and Exporting Raymond are both available to stream on Netflix. Everybody Loves Raymond is shown across the world in syndication and has been adapted in Poland, Egypt, Israel, Russia, England, and India. Rosenthal's charity of choice is the Flourish Foundation, a social profit dedicated to inspiring systemic change through cultivation of healthy habits of mind that promote personal well-being, benevolent social action, and environmental stewardship. Find out more at flourishfoundation.org. And that's our show for today. Clips provided are courtesy of Worldwide Pants Incorporated, CBS Studios, Lucky Bastard Productions, and Netflix Studios. Our theme is from Epidemic Sound. Executive producers on Barry the Lead are Graham Hancock and Sheena Barnett. And I'm your host, Derek Russell. Thanks for listening. That my daughter, who is seven now, she was a little over two, and we had uh, we had been shopping on a Sunday afternoon, had gone to the grocery store, one of the like a Costco, and they had an industrial meat slicer, one of those big ones that you see like in the restaurant, big silver ones, and uh, that you nobody would ever need in their residential home. Why you could buy it at a Costco, God only knows. But you know, we we were walking by it, and she points at it, and she goes, "We're getting that." And I said, yeah. I said, what why? I said, what we're getting. It. And she said, I want it. Get it. Yeah. Get it. And I yeah. I said I, I whether it was shiny, I don't know. But she said, get it. I want it right now. And you know, I said, I, I don't know what you think you're talking about. And she said, I said, get it. She got very persuasive with me. And I said, Who yeah. do you who do you think you are? And she yeah. said, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. So we got the meat slicer. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you don't want to mess with that.
0: No. <laughs> Just in case. Right? Well, listen, nobody believed Jesus when he was here the first time. <laughs>